The idea is, oh wait, yeah, if we find purpose, we'll be happier. But it's so much bigger than that. If we find purpose, that probably means that we're finding purpose that is bigger than ourselves, which means we're making the people around us happier. We're making communities better. We're making societies better. We're doing things that is making the world a better place. The world doesn't need more people who are not following their passions. The world needs more people who are finding their purpose and acting on it and being a force in their community. And that is why finding your purpose is such an awesome and cool thing. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to another episode of Live an Extraordinary Life. I am your host, Tim Bishop, and this podcast serves as a guide to help you to find what an extraordinary life is for yourself. This episode is going to be a summary of a book that I recently read that has made a big impact on my life, and I hope it will make a big impact on your life. The book is called Blue Zones Happiness by Dan Butner, and to give you a background on the Blue Zones and Dan Butner. So Dan Butner was hired way back in the day to go around the world and to take photos of people who were over 100 years old. And this was National Geographic that was organizing this. And what Dan ended up finding was that there were certain areas of the world that there was a lot of people who were over the age of 100, and they were all very healthy, very happy, and they were still very active in their community. So what he decided to do is he decided to start studying these areas, and he identified five areas around the world where there was the longest living and healthiest people, and he tried to take what those people were doing in their day-to-day life and take out all the good things and try to teach people back in America. So he's written a lot of books about it, but he's also using a community-based health approach to try to implement these strategies into communities in the United States. So the first test community was in Albert Lee, Minnesota. He moved on to Iowa, um, cities in California and beyond at this point. So he's doing a lot of really cool work And the first book that I ever read by him was his New York Times bestseller called The Blue Zone Solution. This book was about him taking the habits that he learned from these people who are the longest living and healthiest people in the world and trying to implement these habits from a community-based approach in the U.S. So the whole idea behind Blue Zones is that these people who are living in these long, healthy communities they don't really intentionally have to set up their lives like this. The environment allows them to live in a way that just makes them healthy. So Dan's big thing is design your environment and then your life will change and will be healthy as well. From that, he had kind of nine takeaways I'll share with you and then we'll move on to this book. But his power nine for living a long and healthy life in that book were nine things. One was move naturally, so stay moving, stay physically active. Two was find a purpose, a reason for waking up, a reason for living. Three was downshift, so find successful ways for eliminating stress in your life. Four was the 80% rule. This was introduced to him by the Okinawans of Japan, and they used the term hirabachi hu, and before they ate the meal, they said this and reminded them to eat until they were 80% full because our bodies don't realize that we're full and we end up overeating a lot of the time and it adds to a lot of obesity in the world. Number five was the plant slant. So these really healthy people around the world ate meat only about five times per month. 
Number six was wine at five. He found that if you actually have a glass of wine a day, it can be a good thing to downshift and eliminate stress. But he says you cannot save all seven or 14 glasses of wine for a Saturday night. Number seven is belong, be a part of a community, be involved in the community. Number eight is put your loved ones first in your life. And number nine is find the right tribe, the right inner circle of people that you are spending your time with. That is basically kind of the background on the Blue Zones, and so I decided to pick up the second book and read it, and I think it's extremely valuable. So I want to start by just doing a quick quick overview of the three places that he picked, or I didn't say he picked, the research shows are the happiest places in the world, and I'll give you a little bit of an overview of them, and then I'll talk about kind of my take main takeaways from this book. So before I get into the three communities that are the happiest, there is a point that should be made and that he makes in the point Uh, he makes very clearly is that countries with violence, poverty, and disease tend to always rank at the bottom of happiness. People who are worried about safety, livelihood, or health always tend to not be as happy. So again, it's kind of like you need the basic needs to be covered and then other factors become more important than income after that. But income and basically basic well-being is kind of the first layer of happiness. So I thought that that was important to mention. So I'm going to go over the three places he talked about. One, first one was Costa Rica. The second mar- second one was Denmark. And the third one was Singapore. So when looking at Costa Rica, the really main thing that stuck out to me is the social connections of the area. Connection, family gatherings, and ability to create happy moments with people seem to make up for their seemingly uh, lack of income a bit. They're not, they have the ability to meet ma- basic needs, but they do not have as much income as the other places that Dan Buettner chose. And he had this great quote that I loved, and it said, people don't get into the trap of overworking, overspending, and under-socializing. I don't know if that was a little bit of a jab at America, but it kind of hits home a little bit, right? A lot of people overwork, a lot of people overspend, and this kind of results in under-socializing because we're doing our own thing a lot of the time. The happiness in this area, Costa Rica's formula seems to be that everyone just talks to everyone no matter the status. There's There's kind of no limiting barriers to connection. They really believe in peace. There's a quote in the book that says, if you go to Honduras, the monuments in the square celebrate military heroes. Here we celebrate peace. So they're really all about making peace with each other, socializing with everyone. And then they said they have invested a lot into education and making sure that their children are getting the education that they deserve as they're growing up. And they really call this the Pura Vida mentality. And I believe Pura Vida just means a pure life. But again, with extraordinary social support, the freedom to make their own choices, and this culture of generosity is really, is really truly incredible in my eyes. And there was this story in the book, and I just, I don't know what scenario this could really possibly happen in the community that I live live in in the United States because we get most of our food from grocery stores. But there's a story about a man who his job every day is to basically go sell sell avocados at the market. And at the end of every day, whatever avocados he doesn't sell, he simply just gives away. His quote was, a giving hand is never an empty hand. And it's just kind of like, man, like I, I don't know, you know, again, what, how that could be set up something like that in the U S but it, 
it's just a beautiful thought, to say the least. I'm not saying that grocery stores should be just handing out food, but it, it's just a good mindset to have in life. I think a giving hand is never an empty hand. So a few tips to be more like them that Dan left in the book. And the one that I really want to focus on is to develop daily social rituals. So instead of having to plan and organize every social experience you have, basically develop rituals daily or weekly with your friends, families, or coworkers, or wherever it might be, but people who are important to you in your life, and make it so you set up some sort of norm. So, for example, what I did in my life was every Monday night, my friends and I decided to meet up to hang out and have a meal together. And we did we picked Monday because normally Monday would be, quote-unquote, the worst day of the week in America's kind of lingo. Like, everyone hates Mondays, which I disagree with that logic completely. I could go on a rant about that, but I won't. But basically saying now the thing we have to look forward to the most is Monday because we know that our best friends are getting together every Monday night to hang out. So something like that with your friends, with your family, whoever it might be, but develop social rituals that allow you to make socializing easy. So the second community, Denmark. And the thing that really struck me about this community in Denmark that they studied and I got to get the name for you I'll put it in the show notes I it's kind of I'm blanking on it right now but the thing that was crazy about Denmark was that the design of the communities it made it so easy for interaction and I'll talk to you about basically these co-housing complexes that they use so the one they talked about was there's 22 families living in a co-housing complex or shared home so let me explain this to you for a second you have your own unit So you have your own space, but there's a shared garden, a shared launch room, a shared workshop, storage areas, parking, a dining hall. And what's crazy about this is in this specific one, each family basically only cooks one to two meals a month, but for the whole community and then eats the rest of their meals free. So it's almost like they go to this, they have this dining hall area, basically like once or twice a month, you would go and you would cook for a hundred or so people. But then the rest of the month, there would be food that would be there for you. And every time you go and get food, it's almost like a school cafeteria where you're going in and you're having food that's just made for you. And I thought about that and I was like, wow, that actually sounds kind of incredible. (laughs) Imagine only having to cook twice a month, but it's huge meals for a bunch of people. So it's a really fun meal to cook. And then secondly, you have the rest of the meals made for you and you have an opportunity to interact with people and to to be with people. So I thought that was super cool about this. The other thing was that this community seems to strike a perfect balance, he says in the book, between our need for privacy and our instinctual desire for human interaction, support, and trust. So there's this element of like, if you're having meals with these families, you know them. If you have kids, you know, you can find childcare at any moment. You know, you're a little bit close to the neighbors. You're not all best friends, but there's an opportunity where you're constantly being nudged to socialize your community and really feel like you're living in a community. And I think that that's really, really important. The other cool thing about Denmark was that, and again, this is a little bit difficult to compare to America, but it's just an interesting perspective to look at it because so people in Denmark get free education and it takes the average university student 6.6 years to graduate. And in the book, it says this gives students the time they need to find the vocations and hobbies that will truly satisfy them for the long term. So fascinating, right? Again, like it, where I grew up, at least, it was it was kind of go, go, go. You want to finish in four years. You want to get your internships. You want to get your job. You want to move as fast as possible. But the evidence might be showing that moving slower is 
the right thing to do because it gives you more time to experience things and to find things that you really want to do with your life. And, you know, I know that a lot of us couldn't afford 6.6 years of school because that'd be a lot of money here in the U.S. But there is really valuable things like gap years, like taking some time off and really giving yourself a little bit of time and just taking that pressure off yourself. I think there's a lot of pressure that kids put on themselves and that maybe their families and maybe even society on a bigger level puts on kids to figure out what they want to do at the age of 21, 22 years old. And I don't think that's very reasonable. So what I learned from Denmark is that taking your time to really find those things you truly enjoy is going to pay dividends in the long term. And the final thing about Denmark that I want to share is there's this Gallup uh, study that basically talked about happiest places. And they talked about how happiest places are near water, easy access to recreation. You're, li- you're likely to bump into friends and acquaintances throughout the day. And the survey suggests that it's optimal to have six hours of social interaction daily. And I'm like, wow, this is incredible. Where have I seen something like this in the world? And then I thought about it. I'm like, wow, this must be why people love college so much. Because most colleges are near some sort of water. They have easy access to recreation. You bump into people all day and you for sure get like, six hours of social interaction, maybe not every day, but a lot of days, right? So I thought about this because as I was leaving University of Wisconsin-Madison, I'm like, everybody is sad to leave this environment. And it kind of supports Dan's theory that it's all about the environment you're living in. Because when you're at college, the environment is tailored around socializing. You don't even have to really try. It just kind of happens. There's so many people around always that it's, it's so easy to do that. So imagine if you could live in a community like that after you graduated and for the rest of your life, I think that there would be a lot of happiness around the world if we could do that. So I think that that was pretty cool. Some final tips about Denmark that I want to share that he left in the book were, one, again, designing your community and designing your life so it favors social interaction. But two, this idea of carpe retirement, he calls it, which means don't wait until retirement to do the things that you want to do. In Denmark, it was very common to basically be doing all the things you already want to do when you retire. And then when you retire, you just continue doing those things. So all the different hobbies and things you want to try, basically saying don't make your life into parts and sections. Try to integrate all the things that you want to already do and do as much of them as possible while you're still a working person and and while you're still, you know, making money to support your family or whatever you got to do but try to work in as much of that dream life as possible right now you don't have to always wait to build that dream life and then finally a cool thing that i thought was they had these rooms these flow rooms basically that they created in their house and these rooms were made to be fully engaged with an activity you're doing so basically it could be a, a family meal it could be some sort of book you're reading. It could be some sort of instrument. It could be a game. It could be whatever. But basically, like, there's a designated room in the house. Like, if you're in that room, you're being present with either A, whatever you're doing, or B, with the people that are in that room. And I just kind of like that concept of designing a room in your house, again, that encourages full engagement with life rather than something more passive like watching television or sitting on your phone. And finally, the third community happiness in Singapore. This one's a little bit shorter, but what's really unique about Singapore is the pride. So there's this quote in the book and Dan laughed at it and so did I. And it says, Singapore has given so much to me. I don't do enough to give back. And I was kind of like, wow, people in the U.S. don't really think this way. People in Singapore live with a lot of pride. And this 
I think in effect has them to live with a lot of meaning and purpose. And this creates them to be happier and more satisfied with their lives and less suffering and depression and anxiety. And, you know, they bounce back quick from adversity because they have this pride in what they live and they have this this deep desire to continue the work that the country has already done. So they go, they operate by these five C's and I'll run through them pretty quickly. But one is complementary, and that means find a good match between the challenges you take on and your skills and your interests. The second C is congruence, which means be authentic to your true self. The third C is commitment. Stay committed to what you're doing. The fourth C is contribution. Provide contribution to your community, your family, and beyond. And five is community. Live in the right community. So again, this, I think, system in Singapore is a lot more based off of structure. It's a lot more based off of respect for the people who came before you. It is based off of having pride in your country and the work that is done. And Dan says this type of happiness might appeal to you if you don't want to take risks when it comes to career choices. You feel comfortable being part of a tribe, belonging to a religion, an extended family, or a sports team. But you favor your financial security and supporting your family and carrying on the values of your family and your country over this kind of unlimited freedom that some people might want. And this comes with, again, having that income around, this is 80 to 120,000, but again, it's kind of adjusted. But the mark in, in the Midwest, I think is about 75,000. And once you hit that mark, you should be financially stable and have all your basic needs met. And the rest of your time and energy should be spent on less material pursuits. That is kind of the three areas they identified. And if you want to look more into them, I will link the cities in the show notes so you can check them out. But I think if you want a full detail of it, again, grab a copy of the book, Blue Zones Happiness by Dan Butner, and check it out for yourself. So I want to end with... A couple things that I think are really important about this book. The first couple I want to talk about are purpose, community, and health. So as far as purpose goes, it, it keeps coming back to purpose. So David Cameroon, the former prime minister of the UK, he says that well-being can't be measured by money or traded in market. It's about the beauty of our surroundings, the quality of our culture, and above all, the strength of our relationships. Improving our society's sense of well-being is, I believe, the central political challenge of our times. So David said this, and then Dan went on to talk about, well, what can societies do, right? What kind of change could people implement at a, at a big level, at a political national level that would make people happier? And the thing they found was super interesting. It said that the number one thing that a community could implement to make people happier was to basically promote volunteering more. I thought, oh, that's kind of peculiar that that's the number one thing. But what it came down to was learning to identify your gifts and passions, your reason for waking up, and then putting these gifts to use in the community through volunteering. It's basically saying do more of what you love and through your strengths. Now, you can hopefully find this in work, right? You can hopefully be able to give through the work you do. And Dan says, really, before you take any position, you should seriously ask yourself, and I believe in this wholeheartedly, if this position will allow you to use your gifts or talents in a meaningful way, is it going to challenge you and be that perfect balance of this is difficult, this isn't too hard or too easy, and you get immersed in the state of engagement and you're fully involved 
in your work. And if it doesn't do that, at least ask, is it going to get me there? Because if not, then you should look for a different job. So basically, it's you can find this purpose and this calling two ways. But I think it's important to acknowledge that there is two ways. You can do it through your work. Or if your work isn't giving you that deeper sense of purpose, but it provides you a sense of financial security that you love, you can find that sense of purpose in many other ways. There's some more supporting local families, supporting national movements, whatever it might be, but just getting out and volunteering your community and using gifts is the number one thing that they suggested for communities to do. And again, going back to picking a job, right? He says, simply strive for success, but don't put money over other goals in picking a job. Again, money is important. We've covered it. You have to have those basic needs met. But at the end of the day, when the basic needs are met, you need more than just money. And again, going on to a few more quotes from the book, this quote was, one of the most effective things you can do to nudge yourself in the direction of greater happiness is to reconsider your purpose in life. And what does this really look like? Because I think that it's hard to identify this purpose, but I think it's really just setting up a ritual of reflection and taking stock on your personal gifts and honestly asking yourself if you're using them and trying new things. And as you go along your life, you're constantly reflecting and refining and you're learning at what those things are that you think you're really good at and that the world really needs for you to give. And finally, here's a few quotes from The Power of Purpose, a book by Richard Leader, I believe is how you pronounce the last name. And I think that this is pretty beautiful and supports my whole theory behind, behind the lifelong pursuit of an extraordinary life. And here's the quotes. Each of us is on a lifelong quest to find our purpose, whether we are consciously pursuing the quest or are vaguely aware that something is missing. If we do not discover our purpose, then a large portion of each day is spent doing something we might not truly care about and would rather not be doing. Having a purpose that provides real power requires a goal outside of ourselves. Only when our focus, our purpose, is larger than ourselves can meaning be deeply savored and long-lasting. It's not just a goal completed and then forgotten. Now, this is quite beautiful, if you ask me, because it reminds us what purpose really looks like. Because the idea here is interesting. The idea is, oh, wait, yeah, if we find purpose, we'll be happier. But it's so much bigger than that. If we find purpose, that probably means that we're finding purpose that is bigger than ourselves, which means we're making the people around us happier. We're making communities better. We're making societies better. We're doing things that is making the world a better place. The world doesn't need more people who are not following their passions. The world needs more people who are finding their purpose and acting on it and being a force in their community. And that is why finding your purpose is such an awesome and cool thing. So the second thing I wanted to talk about here was community. Community is fascinating to me, and I wanted to bring up this concept that the Okinawans of Japan use, and they call it a moai. And a a moai is basically a lifelong social support system. So what they did is they basically would have five people who would be committed to be lifelong friends to each other, and those five people would meet up all the time, and they would support each other emotionally, physically, financially at times even, but it was basically this social support system that we're always there for each other and that we're always in each other's life. And I thought, wow, that is kind of incredible, right? It gives you this kind of other family that isn't your true family. Dan used this Moai concept to try to help people 
do the same in their community. So again, this goes back to the kind of the Costa Rican idea of having daily rich or yeah, daily social rituals, but it's the idea that setting up a moai in your life and creating this within your own social network can really do a lot of things for you and having people who are there and can support you at any time that you need it or just again spend time with. Like, there's no really rules for how to set up a moai in your own life, but it's people that you can enjoy each other's companies who are some of your best friends, but will also be there for you in a time of need. And one of the things that it says in the book is the spread of happiness may depend as much on frequent face-to-face interactions as on deep personal connections. So it's Moai allows us for deep personal connections that humans, I think, really need. And another thing that this does is really, I mean, all these famous people, you know, are saying you are the company you keep. You're the most like the five people you spend the most time with. When you create a Moai, you're kind of choosing who those people are and you're choosing who you're going to spend your most time with. And it, on the other side of the spectrum is eliminating you hanging out with friends who have bad habits because bad habits can be equally as c- contagious. If, it's funny. If you're around someone who's obese, your likelihood to be obese can triple. Um, if you're around someone who smokes, drinks, is racist, all these harmful behaviors are behaviors are contagious. So it's not just the idea that you're surrounding yourself with great people, but you're also trying to sort of avoid being with people who have bad habits that you do not want to hang out with. So really how to create a Moai, I think the first step is just having a weekly ritual where you meet up with people. And this could be over a meal. This could be over some sort of shared activity. But allowing opportunity then for people, if they want to say something, if they want to have something on their mind, to really say it. And again, I don't think the entire, the idea here isn't just to sit and be like a, a group therapy session where that's all you're doing. The idea is to enjoy each other's companies, do something fun, but allow for that further conversation. In my own life, I've created some sort of a moai in my own life. And the thing that is awesome about it is we can do anything together. But at the same time, by giving time for those weekly conversations, over the course of the last year, which is about how long we've been doing doing our weekly meetups, we've pushed each other to pursue purpose, to pursue passions. Like it goes way beyond just like talking about your bad day, right? When you have a moai, all of a sudden you're pushing each other to say, if someone's coming to you every week and saying, I don't like my job, then you're saying, okay, well, you got to find more purpose in your life. You got to do something else. Or if someone's coming to you and every, you know, every week they're saying, ah, I just, I'm just not being as healthy as I should be. You push them towards doing that, right? Again, you're, you're just learning so much about other people and and you can push them towards being that person that they know they want to be. And you're just nudging them in the direction of what they already want to do inside of them. So it's truly a beautiful thing. Again, I think just really prioritizing friends and families in our life and having this moai alone adds so much purpose into our life. Because all of a sudden you have a group of people who are not only helping you, but you have purpose in your life because you're helping them and you're adding value to their life. I think that's kind of a beautiful thing. And I think that I don't have to dive too much into the topic of health, but really it just talks about eating right, being physically active, and getting a good night's sleep. And these things all sound simple, yet so few people do those three things. So if you want to learn more about those, really I would say dive into his first book, The Blue Zone Solutions, or this book again, Blue Zone Happiness, will cover those things. I'm not going to cover them in depth because they they seem obvious. There's just a lot of various reasons why people don't live a healthy life. And finishing up with a few things here. 
So again, going back to the idea of money, because money is important. And the thing that he really emphasized in this book, it's about how you use your money and how you spend your money. So the goal is not to maximize money. We've seen that that is not the ultimate answer time and time again with wealthy people in our society who are extremely unhappy. It is not about simply making the bank account go as high as possible. It is about how you're optimizing the money you have to be smarter to design the life that you want. So Dan says it's about really maximizing the time you can spend on relationships and on on pursuing your purpose and pursuing your passions and pursuing the things that you love, right? Isn't that the goal? The goal is to design our lives in a way where we can do the things we love in a way that is impactful for other people with the people we love as much as possible. And if that becomes the center point, the focal of our uh, of our attention, rather than maximizing money, I think so much would change in the world. They also studied how you use your money and how having more money can create more happiness if you do two things. If you use that money for experiences over stuff, and if you use that money for others instead of yourself. Those are two things that have proven to make you happier. So in that sense, money can create happiness. And going back to that final point of $75,000, that's going to be my new like trigger word, my new buzzword, $75,000. That's not that much. I mean, it's a lot of money, don't get me wrong, but people strive for six figures and for millions of dollars and this and that. This is saying, look, $75,000 a year will get you what you need money-wise to be happy. The rest is up to you to design the rest of your life in a way that will make you happy. Okay, so the final thing I want to talk about is that they really interviewed some leading psychologists in the world, and they had some really fascinating things to say about happiness. And most of them are rooted in some ancient traditions uh, around Buddhism or Greek philosophy. But they involve simple things like expressing gratitude or savoring a moment or random acts of kindness or setting up these media-free zones for dinners to encourage conversation setting practical goals, and all these things really are have been found in the world's happiness places, these blue zones. And I'm going to totally botch this name, so I might not even say it, but this positive psychologist, she's the author of How of Happiness. Type in How of Happiness on Google, look at her name. I apologize, it's a long last name, and I don't even want to try to t- attempt it because I'm going to botch it. But she's been known to be the queen of happiness, and she says that activities like these have been shown to increase positive emotions, a sense of purpose, and an overall satisfaction with life. But she says the challenge is sustaining the new level of happiness. And the thing that she says and really talks about is having as many things in the positive thinking basket as possible. So work on several happiness-boosting activities so they don't all become normalized and become part of that day-to-day routine of your life. So some of these activities might look like spending time with friends and family, doing generous acts for others, trying to maintain an optimistic outlook on life, which I'll talk about ways to do that in a second, Um, remaining physically active, pursuing worthy goals, practicing things like gratitude, having a gratitude journal, so something like this, right? But in the positive thinking basket, one of the important things really is to not dwell on negative thoughts in the past. And this is interesting. If you listen to my Meditation 101 episode, yes, I'm going to talk about meditation for a second because it gets really actually, and I didn't expect this to happen, but the end of this book was a lot about meditation. So this default mode network is a part of our brain that is heavily tied to past experiences and to ruminating on past experiences. And people who meditate, they studied over time that 
this part of the brain becomes less and less and less active. So doing something like meditation can actually help you not to dwell on negative thoughts in the past. And this gets to Barbara Fredrickson's work. And Barbara Fredrickson is a leading happiness expert at the University of North Carolina. And she talks about her broaden and build theory. And I had never heard about this, but this is actually really fascinating in my opinion. So she talks about the evolutionary function of negative emotions. And it really was to stay alive, right? You're triggered by a threat, so feelings such, as, feelings such as anger, stress, or anxiety would happen like you're in the wild, right? You see a lion. See, so okay, do I fight or do I flee? What do I do? So these negative emotions really triggered us as our survival tactic. But positive emotions, she says, have an unrecognized evolutionary function. They were not only just pleasant to experience, but they helped us to grow. She said they opened our mind to new ideas, to new connections. They weren't just to feel good, but they were good for you. And she says that positive emotions aren't organized around threats. They're organized around opportunities. And I find this to be so interesting. And she has an incredible quote here that says, although positive emotions tend to be short-lived, lasting only seconds or minutes, they are like nutrients for our psychological well-being, helping to grow resources. That's the broaden part of the broaden and build. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of incredible. And then she says something, again, going back to supporting meditation. Meditation appears to compound these effects as if it offers a super dose of happiness resilience when practiced over time. I mean, people, come on. If I could give you one argument to meditate more, it would be that line right there. Meditation appears to compound these effects as if it offers a super dose of happiness, resilience when practiced over time. And again, she says that she thinks that meditation, this is a direct quote from the book here, I'm taking this. Meditation just put people on this positive trajectory of growth and then that became a sort of self-sustaining upward spiral of growth. People who enjoyed regular emotional boost from everyday activities such as helping others, playing, learning, or praying. In other words, developed a greater aptitude for generosity, socializing, and mindfulness, which encouraged them to seek out more opportunities for pleasant, for pleasant emotions in that upward spiral. So again, the main point here between Barbara and Sonja, the author of How of Happiness, is to really prioritize positivity. Can you do this? Have you been doing this? Have you been prioritizing it? Because it's different to say I want to be happy and positive and blah, 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 but are you prioritizing it? Are you really doing things in your life that is intentionally making that a number one priority? To close, the power nine of happiness that Dan talks about, and I will go through them pretty quickly here. One is to love someone. People show that when you love, you have a better life. Two, your inner circle, your moai, right? Your inner tribe. Who is that and how good are they and how are they affecting your life and are they doing good things for your life? Three is to engage. Be a part of your community. Volunteer. Join a club. Be involved in the community around you. Four is to learn likability. So this is basically just saying learn to like people. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but... Also, just, you know, learn to be able to be in all different kinds of social environments, right? Because, again, with the Costa Ricans, as they had basically just I, 
eliminated those social barriers of we can talk to ever. Like learn to eliminate those social barriers in your life. You know, say hi to people, interact with people. Don't just stick with your own crew. You know, make make social interaction really a part of your life in every single aspect. Five is move naturally. Six is look forward, set goals, and pursue them. Seven is to get seven plus hours of sleep a night. Eight is to shape your surroundings. So like we learned about Denmark, design your surroundings. So socializing happens, so good health happens. And so it doesn't have to be such a daily choice. And nine is find the right community to live in that fits for you. As we learned about the Costa Rican community, the Denmark community, the Singapore community, all communities are different. Find one that fits your values and go live there because you will probably be a happier person. So everyone, thank you for tuning in this episode of Live an Extraordinary Life. This book and the work of Dan Butner has made a huge impact in my life from how I eat, thinking about the plants land, eating a lot more plants in my life, from how I design my social interactions, how I look at things such as meditation, gratitude, joy, and positive experiences, and really just how I'm trying to design my life going forward. I think there's, you know, me being a 22-year-old kid, it's easy to say, yeah, well, I already have a lot of these things, and it's true, but if you look at the general trend, people tend to become less and less social over time as they get families and live in their houses, and there is actually an epidemic going on, which sounds crazy, of loneliness in middle-aged males, which sounds crazy to say, but this is happening to a lot of people around the world. So if you're sitting there thinking, oh, well, I don't really need to listen to all this because my life is pretty good right now, I think that's very true. Just because your life is good right now doesn't mean it's going to be good in 10 years. So I think the idea is being proactive here, thinking about how you're going to design your life going forward and think about all those things that you're going to consistently want in your life. So as you're forced to make life choices going forward, you know what's most important to you. You're not making life choices based off of something like how much a paycheck is giving you or something more material like that. So thanks again. And as always, go live an extraordinary life.